Uh, this morning, we are going to continue our series in the family and marriage uh, section that we have been looking at. But before we get into the message, which will be from the book of Ruth, I'm going to read to you from Psalm 32 this morning for our verse of confession. I'm going to read the first five verses of Psalm 32, and then we'll spend a moment in quiet prayer before I lead us together. So Psalm 32 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For the day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Father, as we sang earlier, there's power in the blood. And Lord, I'm thankful today that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Lord, that our sins are many, but uh, your mercy is more. Your grace is sufficient during the times that we stray away. And Lord, I thank you that as Chad sung, there is an anchor for our soul, a firm foundation that is Christ. And so today, Lord, we confess our sins. We ask you to forgive us. We ask you to open our eyes and our hearts to the word, Lord, that we would set aside all our worldly concerns, all our cares, all our burdens, and come with just open hands and open hearts to receive what you have for us today. Lord, we thank you for just giving us this opportunity. And Lord, we lift up the many today that we love that are still not with us. Ask you to bring peace and comfort and healing into their lives, Lord, for Jim and Marcia and Miss Peggy and just so many others, Lord, that uh, we love that are going through things. Touch them and let them know the, that you love them and, and that the church loves them, too. And we'll give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to flip over uh, to the book of Ruth, like I said, that's where we'll be today. It's, it's a book that is a, a fabulous story about redemption. And uh, it shows a true picture, I believe, of Christ being an advocate for his people. Uh, but it's a book that is largely left unread and unstudied. And that's unfortunate uh, because there's just so much, so much truth in this letter and so much, so much that we can learn from it. So we're going to we're going to just simply look at the opening lines of Ruth chapter one. The title of my message today is Home Insurance. Home insurance. I'm not trying to sell you any insurance. That's just the title. But Ruth chapter 1, if you can, I'm going to ask you one last time. If you can't stand, that's okay. But if you would, let's read together God's Word uh, in reverence. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The Bible says this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons... The name of the man was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of their two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech and the, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women was left without her sons and her husband. Father, we pray that you will bless the reading of your word in this hour together. Father, we just ask you to move in our hearts, open our eyes to the truth, 
convict, encourage, strengthen whatever is needed, Lord. And we just pray that you would increase and I would decrease, uh, Father. And thank you for just allowing me to be the messenger today to preach your glorious gospel. It's in the name of Jesus we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to give you some statistics that are not very encouraging to start out, but I I hope sometimes to to bring you down a little bit so that the Lord can lift you back up. And so here are some statistics, and I could give you many more of these concerning life in in some of the homes. Maybe perhaps you're, you're home right next to you, and you don't even have any idea that your neighbors are going through these things. But 20% of homes in America have partners that are being physically abused. 25% of homes in America have children that are being raised by a single parent. 90% of teens have used or are at least accepting of pornography. One of the things that is becoming rapidly more popular is the, the VR devices, the virtual devices that you wear and you can see it almost feels like you're in uh, the moment, if you will. Pornography is currently a $3.3 billion industry. In the next three years, they expect that to increase by a billion dollars just through VR usage of pornography. So I give you these statistics and like I said, I could give you many more, but at the end of the day, why I bring these up and what the message uh, wants to focus on is stability in the home and how it is lacking for so many. We talked in Sunday school about the sad reality. Uh, Tiffany had posted a thing on Facebook the other day and, and kids were responding to why they, why they were so apathetic toward high school. And just to read the comments of folks your age was just heartbreaking uh, to see the, just the hopelessness that a lot of them had. And, and some of them said, well, my, my family doesn't care, so why should I? The world's such a mess, why bother? I mean, it was just heartbreaking to see young folks with their whole life ahead of them just feeling so discouraged and so defeated already. And the reality is that some of those children that responded probably have not a very good home life. And so if you have a good home life today, you're, you're very blessed. But we understand that not everyone does. I want to read to you uh, a little quote here from the Huffington Post, which is certainly not a Christian organization. So this is coming from just a worldly, secular perspective. But it reaffirms what the scriptures tell us about the need for stability in the home. This article said this. A child who experiences instability at an early age of development is under stress. Neuroscience tells us that when a child is stressed, From consistent poverty, abuse, divorce, or insecurity, he overproduces the stress level cortisol. Then cortisol bays his brain, changing both brain architecture and impulse control. Such stressors in a child's life can lead to unintended consequences, including, now think about these things in our world today, behavior problems, academic problems, excuse me, social problems, problems with substance abuse, and impulse control. Often a child experiencing undue stress will present regressive behavior and changes in eating, sleeping, school performance, relationships, and motivation. Do we not see so much of that today? Teachers, you can probably relate to the fact that many of those issues are things that you battle on a day-to-day basis. And I believe a large part of that is the instability that so many of these kids find in their home. And then they go out into the world and guess what? There's certainly no stability in the world, especially right now with so much uncertainty and unrest and just overall unkindness that we see. And so these young folks are looking for a place, looking for something to bring stability. And if they can't find it at home, and 
are not plugged into a church and they don't know Christ and they go out into the world, their problems only double down. And that's the reality of what we're facing in a lot of these children and, and just not just the children, but in, in homes in general, right? <clears throat> and so the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says this to the church there. My brothers whom I love and long for, my crown and my joy, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That word stand firm means to plant your feet, to be on solid ground and hold on. Things may be shaking all around you. The only place right now, church, that you're going to find any kind of stability is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need someone and something that does not change. And I've looked all over. Listen, I wasn't always Pastor Chris. There was a time where I was living it up in the world where I was lost as all get out. And I've done and tried just about anything you want to name. And I can tell you this, the only place I've ever found true stability is in the unchanging truth of the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Those are the only two things in my life that have never let me down, that have never failed me, that have never changed. And I can trust to always be there just as they said they would be. That's the reality of what this book is telling us and the person that this book is about, Jesus Christ. And so we need that solid rock. We need that firm foundation. We need that anchor. And I implore you today, if you don't know Christ, if you're not walking with Christ, that you consider if that still small voice is speaking to you today, that you make the decision to follow him and serve him. You will never, ever regret taking up your cross and following Jesus. I can promise you that. And so when we have those things, if you're fortunate enough to have been raised up in a home where Christ was central and he wasn't just a, something that was talked about, but your family lived it out to the best of their ability. Again, nobody does that perfectly. But if it was an, there was an effort made to serve Christ, to obey his word, to follow him and to serve him where he wanted you to go, you are blessed. Yeah, you, should, you should be on your knees every day thanking God that you grow, grew up or are a part of a home or are trying yourself to provide a home that does those things. Because James 1.8 tells us that there is a double-minded man and that person is unstable or restless in all of his ways. If, if you're constantly back and forth, in and out, this way and that way, the Bible says that you are unstable. And what we need in our homes today, guys, is not more instability, uh, but we need the stability so that these kids and our own marriages can flourish and thrive in a place where that Christ, Christ and that harmony is there. So let's get into our text today from Ruth. And I want to try to bring out three things today that I believe cause problems in the home, in the family, in the marriage. Three things I want you to see. Um, before we get to that, though, I do probably feel like I need to at least set the stage a little bit if you're not familiar um, with the book of Ruth. So in verse one, the Bible tells us that this takes place in the days when the judges ruled. So the judges, before Israel finally asks for a king, God sends judges. So they were basically rulers over certain areas. So we might say these were like mayors or governors. They, they took care of a certain town or a certain village. And basically the book of Judges is a story of Israel getting herself into a mess and God graciously sending a judge to warn and to deliver. And then things are good for a little bit. And then right back into the mess they go and just keep repeating that cycle. So, you know, Israel is basically a lot like us. We do the same thing. God help me. God helps us. We forget about God. We get in a mess. God help me. 
God helps us. We get we forget about God. Repeat, repeat, repeat all the days of our life, pretty much. And so when we think about the days of the judges, there's a there's a verse that's repeated through the book of Judges several times. And I think it really sums up what culture was like for them back back in that time and really what it's like for us today in 2022. Judges 21, 25 is, is one of the times where that verse is used. And it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's basically where we're at in society today. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. If it feels good, do it. There's no right, there's no wrong. Just follow your heart and whatever makes you happy, that's what you ought to do. That's where we are at and that's what was going on in the times of the judges that the book of Ruth is written in. And so with that being said, you understand kind of the culture that they're living in. These things threatened the home of Ruth and Naomi and they will threaten your home today if you're not careful. The first one of those, number one, is that our homes are threatened by the culture. Our homes are threatened by the culture today and, and any culture really that is an ungodly culture. Isaiah 520 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Again, we have we have crossed the threshold anymore about doing things that would surprise and shock people in the past. I used to see stuff on the news. Or I would hear stories and I think, goodness, can we get any worse? I quit asking that question because I think people are taking it as a challenge at this point. Uh, because every time you think it's just as outlandish and as bad and as sinful as it can get, somebody just one-ups it, right? And the bad thing is we live in a society today where not only do people commit sins, but they, they rejoice in those sins. They celebrate those sins. And they want others to celebrate those sins right alongside of them. And if you refuse to do that, then you are labeled by different terms. That is the reality of where we live. I'll give you an example. It's not a popular one, but I'm going to speak on it today. And I'm going to speak on it today just for a moment, specifically because I want to do this in a sense to stand in solidarity with my brothers and sisters in Christ in Canada. And this has nothing to do with the message, but if you're not following this, you should be, because I believe in the next five to ten years it will be here. And that is the fact that John MacArthur, whether you agree with him or whether you don't agree with him, has been on the forefront of this battle. I consider what he's doing today to be uh, much in line with modern-day Charles Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy that he went through in his time. But to make his long story short, Canada passed... Uh, a law called an edict on January 8th that basically said that any any kind of conversion therapy is now outlawed and you will be imprisoned and your organization shut down if you engage in that. You say, what is conversion therapy? Conversion therapy is basically if someone comes to you that was born biologically as one thing and they come to you and they say, well, I was biologically born a male, but I identify as a female. And you sit down and try to convince them or tell them, no, what you are biologically, what your chromosomes make you is what you are. If you sit down and try to say anything like that, and it can be as simple as me saying, uh, God created in, in the image of God, male and female, he created, I just crossed the line in Canada now. To preach the word of God to say, you are male, you are female, and that's what you are, will get you thrown in jail and will get your church shut down. And this morning, all across the land of Canada, pastors have taken a vow together to preach from Genesis 1 and the creation account of male and female. 
And by the time this service ends and their service ends, I have no doubt that many of them will be in the back of a squad car on the way to jail. That's the reality of where we're at in a society. And if you think that's across the northern border and it'll never come here, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. And the times of playing games, guys, are over. I'm telling you, you are going to have to make a decision. It's easy right now to show up at church, to find your favorite pew, and to sit down and listen to me for a little bit and go home. But the reality is, your faith at some point is going to be challenged. You're not going to get to just come in and sit down and go home. They're going to, they're going to make it to where you're going to have to decide who you're serving. And if you're willing to take the consequences that come with serving Jesus. Right now, there's not many for us. We might get laughed at a little bit and called funny names. But that's not persecution. Not in the big picture, but it's coming. And so the reality is we live in a culture today that is destroying the home. It is destroying the home. And too many pastors and too many churches for fear of imprisonment, fear of whatever, have been silent on the issue. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to see the church, you know, come with tape around it and roped off where you can't get in, which they did in several churches already in Canada, saying, hey, you're not you're not allowed to meet together. You're not allowed to do this and that or say this or say that. I don't want to see that happen, but I'm not going to bite my tongue and pretend that what the culture is saying is right is what I should believe and what I should preach. I don't. I don't get to decide what God's word says. I simply proclaim the message. And so the reality is God did create male and female, period, period. And that's no attack on anyone. That's no belittlement on anyone. Listen, if you are struggling today with sexual confusion, I'm not here today to condemn you. I'm not here today to say that I am better than you in any way. We love you. We are glad you are here. But the reality is, if you've come to a Bible preaching church, I'm going to preach the Bible to you. I'm going to tell you what God's word says. I'm going to do it in love. I'm going to do it in grace. I am, I am a sinner just like you. Your sin is no more grievous than mine. I needed Jesus just like you do. But I have to tell you the truth or I will be failing in my duty and my convictions about what I'm supposed to be doing. And one of the things that concerns me, guys, is because we are living in a culture today that doesn't just want to say it's okay for you to believe whatever gender you feel like today, but it goes beyond that now to where really the society is pushing to be just genderless altogether. Like, we don't even want to use pronouns anymore, male, female, him, her, you know, all of that, guys, is not just innocent, harmless semantics. There is an agenda behind this. You have got to understand this. If we don't know history, we're doomed to repeat it. And I'll give you a great example of this. If you, and, and again, a lot of folks don't study this stuff, but you need to. If you're familiar with what went on in Nazi Germany during World War II in the concentration camps, the first thing that they did, if they didn't escort those Jews off the train cars, off the cattle cars, straight into the gas chamber to kill them, if they were fortunate or maybe unfortunate enough to not be killed right off the bat, and they were going to be used in those labor camps, guess what they did? They immediately began to strip them of any type of identity. They shaved their heads. They put on the gray pajamas with the stripes. 
They, they were no longer ever called by a name. They had a number tattooed on their arms, and that's what they went by. All of that was intentional to strip away any type of identity. Because when you don't know who you are, and when your identity is removed, you can be fed and manipulated and controlled to be whatever someone tells you you are. And those Jews, when they looked around, had no identity. And when their identity was stripped away, their hope was lost, and they became just shells. You can look at those horrific pictures during the time of the concentration camps and past all the starvation. You can look into the eyes and just see the hopelessness. And that was all intentionally done by stripping that identity away. And it's being repackaged in a different form today, not under a concentration camp with threat of a gas chamber, but in the freedom of sexuality. You can be anything you want to be, and in trying to be anything you want to be, you end up being nothing at all. And that's the reality of it. And when you don't know who you are, the world will come along and tell you who you should be. And the world is not going to give you stable advice. And kids, I'm telling you, I look at young folks today and they're so confused. And who wouldn't be? Who wouldn't be? You might be confused today because you're in here hearing this message and this is not the message that you hear out there. It's not the message that your friends are telling you. It's not the message that a lot of parents are saying. And so there's more confusion. And I'm telling you, at the end of the day, you're going to have a million voices speaking into your life, but there's one still small voice that you better hear. There's only one voice that's speaking truth. And it's not just the pastor standing up here. If the pastor is not preaching from the word of God, then don't pay him any mind. But if he's preaching the word of God and you can go back for yourself and look at it and read it and study it and say, yes, that is in fact what it's saying. And if you believe this is from God himself, then you should listen. You should listen to it. And it's time we realize, guys, that the world is not our friend. The church has tried so long and so hard to buddy up to the world and to try to be accepted by the world and to try to do worldly things in here so people will like us. Listen, I've said it and I'll say it until I'm blue in the face. It's easy to fill up a church and everybody puts that as the mark of success and pastors fall under that pressure. Oh, my goodness. If I don't fill up the sanctuary, if there's not guests coming in every week, if our youth department is not running 100 and the children's department is not running 100 and and we're not just busting at the seams and we have a building project every week because we're getting so big, then our church is not successful. The pastor feels that pressure and a lot of them. To get the people in here, start doing and saying things that are compromising the Word of God. And if you want to compromise the Word of God, you can fill up the building. We can turn this into a Sunday morning TED Talk, and I can tell everybody how great they are and how it's fine to live any way you want to live and do anything you want to do. And we can dim the lights and shine and put some smoke up and you know do all kinds of stuff and feed you and entertain you. And we'll pack this place out, guys. We'll have to build a new building by next year. But at what cost spiritually? At what cost spiritually? It doesn't do us any good if we fill up a room of people and send them straight to hell, does it? Right. Does that does that accomplish anything good? Of course not. I'd rather let Jesus build his church. He said he would. He's going to build it through faithful preaching and through sharing the gospel and folks loving each other and serving each other. And whatever size the church gets from that method, I'm content with it. Right. I'm content with it. We've got to understand that this world is controlled by the enemy. The Bible tells us that. And if the world is controlled by the enemy, it's not going to be friends with us. 
That doesn't mean that we don't reach out to the world, love the world, share the gospel with the world. But it does mean that there is a separation between us and them. There's got to be. The Bible says, come out from among them and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus loved sinners. But Jesus didn't partake in their sin. He hung out with drunkards, but he didn't get drunk. He hung out with prostitutes, but he wasn't an adulterer. You can love the world, you can care for the world, but you better not be like the world if you're a Christian. Right. You can't be. You can't be. We all fall into the sin. We all at times act worldly. Sure. But as a believer, you're not going to be content to stay in that place. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, listen to what it says there. In their case, the unbeliever, the God of this world. Who's the God of this world? Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus himself said in John 12, 31, now this is the judgment of the world. And now the ruler of this world, who's that? Satan will be cast out over and over and over again. The Bible tells us that this world is controlled by the enemy. And when we go out there, we are in enemy territory. You've got to understand that. We can't keep giving in to the idea that if we're just really nice and we treat people really good, that they're going to like us and they're going to accept our message. They're going to hate this. They always have and they always will. Because men love darkness rather than the light. And this will shine light in people's life and they don't like it. They don't want it. Until the Holy Spirit gets a hold of someone and changes their life and opens their eyes, they are not going to receive this. I don't care how nice you are. Be nice, be kind, be compassionate, but don't bank on that as being accepted by the world. It's not going to happen at all. And our kids and our families and our marriages are under attack by the enemy because he knows that if he can separate and sow discord into those areas, it doesn't matter how great your church is. We can have the most sound, stable, biblical church on earth. But if things at home are falling apart, it's going to be very difficult for our families to hold together just for an hour of this. It's got to carry over outside of the walls of the church. And here's what's happening. The enemy has honed in his attack on the family. The enemy has honed in his attack on marriages. But I think in these days, even more, he's honed in his attack on you all. This age right here, and even younger. It used to be, and when I was a kid, you know, 13, 14, 15, that was the age where rebellion started and you started to look at things you shouldn't look at and do things you shouldn't do. Now it's seven or eight. And you know why? Because you got it right in your pocket. You can access anything you want to see and some things you shouldn't see just by pulling that thing out. Now listen, I'm not here today per se to tell you how to parent and run your home. I'll give you what the Word of God says and I'll try to give you some practical advice too. But at the end of the day, I understand that people are going to do what people want to do. Parents are going to do what people want to do, what parents want to do. But I'll say this. And I use it, so I want, I want to be careful here. I don't want to be hypocritical. Social media for your kids is the worst thing you can let them be a part of. Amen. I know you all don't like me right now for saying that. And, I, and I'm not saying that just because you have social media that you're doing bad things with them. But it's just way too easy. Because, listen, society and the world knows it. It used to be, back when I was young, 
when we got video games, when we got when you know when Xbox first came out, Nintendo first came out and stuff, if you wanted to play together, you had to call up your friend and say, hey, come over to the house. I got another controller, and you can actually sit in a chair next to me, and we'll play a game together. Now, all of these gaming systems are connected through the internet, so you can play games with people all over the world. But guess what? You don't know who you're playing a game with on the other end of that internet connection, number one. And number two, you take little Billy or little Susie, you put a room in the basement where she can be isolated all by herself and shut the door at night and stay up all night long while you're in bed, and you're convinced that she's just playing stuff and they're doing Bible study while they're playing a game. You're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. Of that 90% of kids that view pornography, how many of them do you think are doing that through their PlayStation and their Xbox? 90%. How much pornography do you think they access on their smartphone through their TikTok and their Snapchat? Why do you think kids like Snapchat so much? Because they can snap something and it's gone. You post something on Facebook unless you delete it, it's there forever. Right? But you can snap things and it's gone. You can do those things and it's, it, there's a way to cover up your trail. So to say. And the problem is, you know, there's so much of that stuff going on. And then parents have become so preoccupied and we're so busy and we're so stressed that we just say, well, here, take the tablet, get out of my hair. I don't care what you got on there. Maybe a few parents try to be diligent, but eventually you just don't have enough hours in the day to do everything. And it kind of slips through the crack. I've talked to enough People, I could ask Tiffany, I'm sure Chelsea, if she was here, Brittany, you're a teacher, and, and you haven't been that long, but I'm sure you'll find out. When, when you guys did parent-teacher conferences, two, three hours, a two or three hour block you set aside, or used to at least, for parent-teacher conferences, in that two or three hours, you're lucky to see two or three parents wander in and actually take an interest in the kids. You have 30 kids in that classroom, you might see three parents. They, as long as the kids get on the bus and go to school and come home and that you don't get a call from the principal that day, that's good enough. I'm satisfied. You're not taking an interest in what they're being taught. You're not supporting the teacher with what's going on. And as a result, these kids are just, you don't know what they're getting. The most valuable thing that God can give you is your child. Amen. How can we not take more of an interest in what's going on in their life? You know, I know you can't follow them around 24-7. I know you can't police everything. I know they're going to find ways to do things and see things no matter what. But that's no excuse to not do everything you can as a parent to make sure that you've done your part to try to keep them from it. Or at least have conversations with them, guys, about why the dangers of these things. That it's not just harmless viewing of something on a screen. They need to hear that. They need to know that. The culture is invading our homes. It's corrupting our children. And we got to stop trying to give them so many things from the culture. We just do. It's okay if they don't have all those things. They'll be mad at you for a little while. Their friends will make fun of them because ever, all their friends have cell phones and they don't. They'll be okay. They'll survive. I promise you. And they'll be better for it. Number two, not only is the culture affecting our families, but there are circumstances that are unforeseen that affects our families. Let me show you from the text that we read. I want, you won't see this in the English translation, but I think that there's a lesson here for us if we study it a little bit deeper. When we look at the names in verse 2, there was a husband and a wife, Elimelech and Naomi. The Bible has meanings for names, and I think that those are very important. Elimelech means God is my king. 
And Naomi's name means pleasant one. So we think about that. God is my king, is the husband, and pleasant one is the wife. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. I don't think they just pulled those names out of thin air. I think they named those kids those names for a reason. What do you think those names meant? Sickly, Malon's name, and Kilion meant pining away or wasting away. If you had two kids and you named them Sickly and Wasting Away, does that tell you a little bit about those kids? Nobody wants to have a child that's born with sickness. Nobody wants to see their kids fall into any kind of sickness or illness. Those are unforeseen circumstances that happen sometimes in people's lives. And when those trials and tragedies come into family, they can absolutely destroy a home. They can. I have seen many people cave in under the pressure of trying to take care of a handicapped child or take care of a sick child where the constant visits to the hospital, the, the bills are piling up. It is a huge strain on the home. And you didn't ask for that. You didn't ask for that. They didn't ask for sickly and wasting away to be their kids. But that's what they got. And in those moments, life can get really tough. Not only that, but what did the text tell us was going on? There was a famine in the land. There's no food. The kids are sick. The stress was high. And I'm sure there was pressure in that home. I'm sure there was tension in that home. And the bad thing was all that stuff was going on and there was nothing that they could do to fix it. There's no easy answer sometimes, guys. That's why you need a stable home. That's why you need one another. You need to draw together. A threefold cord is not easily broken, the Bible says. You need to stand together in those difficult seasons of life or it will eat you up. And the enemy will use those situations to turn you against each other. When you need to be together and standing and fighting with one another for one another, you'll be fighting against one another. And in those situations, I don't have an easy answer for you. I'm not going to stand up here and give you a prosperity gospel message that says, well, just tithe a little bit more and, uh, you know, pray a little bit harder and God will fix everything. He'll, he'll heal your kids. He'll, he'll give you a new job and everything's going to be okay. My God can do that. He can heal the sick. He can provide for your needs. Without question, he can do that. But he doesn't just give out blind checks and say, everybody that just believes and tithes will get those things. That's not how this works. It's according to his good pleasure and mercy that he does those things. But I can tell you this, in all those bad situations that went on in Naomi and Elimelech's life, God was still in control. And no matter what you're facing today, those unforeseen things that have come into your life that you weren't praying and they just blindsided you. God is still in control. He is. Isaiah 45, 7 through 9, God himself says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open and the salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed it. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to he who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. God does things. We don't always understand why he does them, but God has a reason. 
And at times we just have to believe that he knows what he's doing when we don't. And just because we don't have an answer doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. Because we are small and finite and he is majestic and glorious and infinite in his ways. And one of these days we will understand. And in the meantime, we have to trust him. The last thing that will destroy our homes, and I'll close with this, is our personal choices. There's unforeseen circumstances. There's the culture. And then there's personal choices. Notice in verse 1 it says that because of this famine, so we, we, we want to give them a pass to some degree and say, well, they had to do something, right? Uh, there's no food. And so it says that they decide to go and sojourn in the country of Moab. Moab was enemy territory. Moab, the Moabites did not like the Israelites. Israel was told to wipe the Moabites off the planet when they entered the land of Canaan. And because they didn't, the Moabites caused problems for them all the rest of their days. But yet now in this season of unforeseen circumstances when there's a famine and the kids are sick, Elimelech makes the decision to go down into Moab. He says, we're going to go down here and we're going to try to find some, some resources for us. And here's the thing, guys. Sometimes in your home life, circumstances will cause you to have to make decisions. But you can never let those circumstances cause you to make decisions that violate the word of God. You can't compromise on that, no matter what the circumstance is. If you say, things aren't good in my home life right now, I'm not getting the affection I need, and so because I'm not getting the affection here, I'll go look elsewhere. You can't say, we are, we're in need of money or resources, and so because my job doesn't pay enough, I'll just go and steal some things that I need. It's never right to do what's wrong, even if your circumstances are difficult. You can't justify it because of circumstances. And the, the dangerous thing we see here with Elimelech and his family is look at what it says at the end of verse 2. They went to Moab initially because circumstances said we need to do something to get some food. But look at what verse 2 says at the end. They went to the country of Moab and did what? They remained there. They stayed there. They decided to go, and once they got there, they started to compromise. They started to say, well, this isn't so bad. We'll just hang out here permanently. And that's the danger of sin. The enemy doesn't put the whole thing in front of you right off the bat. He just lays out a little piece, little breadcrumbs, drawing you out until he gets you in. And then all of a sudden you're in, and you're hooked, and you're there. And then sin begins to have its way with you. Sin will always take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It always will. In Judges chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it says, God says, you'll make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You'll break down the altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done, God says? So now I will say, I will not drive them out before you. They shall become thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. And that is exactly what happens in the life of Ruth and her family and what will happen in your life. Elimelech dies, the sons die, and here we go. There's these women left alone in a pagan culture. What are they going to do? How are they going to get through this thing? And as a result, one of the daughters goes one way, Ruth and Naomi go another way, the family is separated, and ultimately Naomi brings her family back 
to the promised land and God works and provides as he often does. But they had to make the decision. They had to say, we can't stay in this place any longer. We've got to come back to the place where God wants us to be. Your family this morning may be an absolute train wreck. And maybe you can't do anything to fix the mistakes of yesterday, but there is grace to forgive you of those mistakes and those sins. And if you'll say today, I want to come home. I want to do the right things. I want to follow God no matter what my circumstances say. I believe that you will begin to see God work on your behalf. I believe, again, I'm not saying that God's going to fix everything and your life will be perfect and easy. But you will see the blessings of God because when we follow God in obedience, there are blessings that come. I feel that the Bible teaches that. That's not a prosperity mes message. That is a reality. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or sits uh, with sinners and, and scorners and all those things that Psalm 1 talks about. There's a blessing for doing what's right. There's a blessing for following God. And we need that in our homes, guys. We need that today more than ever. I'm challenging you. I'm challenging myself today. Recognize the attacks that are coming on our homes. Recognize the attacks that are coming on these kids. And don't make it easy on the enemy. I know it takes a lot of work to police, if you will, the things that they're watching and the things that they're listening to. But all of that stuff is not innocent. Those songs, those movies, those TikTok videos... They're not all bad. I understand that. But there's plenty of bad on there. You're going to have to get engaged with it. Talk to their teachers. I, I can guarantee you right now that it would thrill Tiffany and Brittany and any teacher if you showed up at them conferences or you just sent an email once a month and said, hey, it's just me checking in. I want to make sure things are going good with my child. Is there anything that I need to help them with or can I can do to help you? You guys would probably do cartwheels if you got messages like that because it's so rare. But it shouldn't be rare. It should be something, you know, that teachers love to hear, uh, I'm sure. And so take and, take and invest in your kids. Invest in your homes. Husbands, love your wives and show that in front of your kids. Wives, love your husbands. Show them that. Show grace when you fall short. You are living out this life in front of these kids. What are they seeing? Say, man, I've blown it. It's too late. My kids are grown. Again, you can't go back and fix the things that have been wrong in the past. But you can start today. You can make a decision like Joshua did, Joshua 24, 15. I'm going to invite Chad and Tiffany to come, and I'm going to close with this verse. Joshua said, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you'll serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. At some point, you've got to say, and maybe men, it has to start with you as the leaders of your home. Starting today, my house is going to serve the Lord. I'm going to show it. I'm going to model it. I'm going to live it. And I'm going to help my wife and my kids to do the same. I think it does have to start with the men of the home. And that's a whole other topic that we'll look at. But I'm challenging you today. Church, the world is crazy. And it's not going to get any better. But we as a church can be better. We as believers can be better. And I believe as we shine our light, God will use us. He will use His Word. But if we can't get it together in here and in our homes, we're not going to make a difference out there. I pray today that you will join me in prayer.
that you will join me in fasting, whatever it takes, for God to bless our homes, to bless our churches, to make a difference. Because this world needs to see Jesus. And if it's not us showing them, I don't know who will.